going to start by thinking, yeah, uh, we're going to start by thinking, what is capitalism? And I want to say that capitalism uh, is the pursuit of your own treasure. The pursuit of your own treasure. Let me give you a definition uh, from a dictionary of what capitalism is. It's an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. So what we're saying here is that individuals are free to own things in a way that they weren't free to own things last week under Marxism. So really what it is is the pursuit of your own treasure, your own stuff. And this might be a bit hard for us to understand as this being a system because actually we live in a capitalist society. It's like if you asked a fish what water is, it would probably struggle, apart from the fact it can't speak, uh, it would probably struggle to tell you because it just is what it's in. And that's the same with us in capitalism. Uh, We only really get a clear picture when we look at it from outside, from other systems. But it's the owning of your own stuff. That's basically what capitalism is, the pursuit of your own treasure. But there are different kinds of, of capitalism. There's free market capitalism, which people call pure capitalism. Uh, sometimes they call it laissez-faire, which is a French word means basically do what you want. And under that system, market is king. The market uh, is the god of that system, if you like. The government is there, but it's mostly to ensure a fair market and to protect its citizens in that market. And otherwise, the state's job is basically to get out of the way as much as possible and let market forces just get on with it. So if you want to think of an example of where this has happened, think about America in previous centuries. There's an American president who uh, is always held up uh, as this. Uh, Now, I'm going to quote Calvin here, but this is Calvin Coolridge. Uh, He saw it as his responsibility to play as much golf as possible when he was asked uh, what his role was as the 30th president of the United States. He saw his responsibility as to pass as few laws as possible and just let people get on with it. And that's basically free market capitalism, pure capitalism. That's that's one type. There are two other systems that are sort of adaptations of that. They're sort of changes, uh, but they're a bit like that, but they're changes in, in certain ways. The first one is government-guided capitalism. In this sort of idea, there is a role for the state in some ways. How much differs from country to country? So it might be that the state has control over education, healthcare, the police or military, Usually in free market capitalism, they allow that one as well. Pensions, infrastructure, all these different things where the state intervenes in the market. And this is the model that we live under, though you might want to dispute that. You can do that afterwards. Uh, There'll be time for questions at the end. Uh, But the debate is usually how much the state should be involved rather than whether it should be involved. And the free market system is sort of rebalanced by the state to look after other priorities. So you might want to look after the poor, you might want to look after the disadvantaged, and it's sort of skewed to make it work for those people. The second way that it can be skewed, though, is what you might want to call crony capitalism or oligarchical capitalism. I prefer crony because it's easy to say. But that's basically nominally capitalist, but in lots of ways it sounds like the communist system. In practice, wealth and power lies in the hands of a few who distort the free market for their own ends. So you might want to think places like Russia or some African uh, failed states. They work with a system where a few people hold all the money, hold all the wealth, and they make the system just work for them. So it's not a free market, but it is capitalist because people are owning their stuff. 
And this is the one that probably gives capitalism a really bad name. Now, some would argue, like Marx, um, that this is the natural outcome of capitalism. But in practice, like I say, it works more like communism did, that a few people control everything. So, in all these different systems, in those three different systems, they all share things in common. It's basically every man or every woman for themselves. What make the system work is that everybody else's interests act as a check on everybody else's, act as a balance to keep it working. So my greed stops you taking my stuff. Okay, that's basically, I've got my interests, I've got my treasure, I've got my stuff, so I don't want you to take it. So I'm going to work the system to make sure you don't take my stuff. And your greed, your self-interest, stops me taking your stuff. Uh, your pride stops me taking your rights. My pride stops you taking my rights. So, at the heart of it, it's a system built on the assumption of sinfulness. It's a system built on the assumption of sinfulness. Marxism, you might want to say, is built on the assumption of human good. That people, if you leave them to themselves, will look out for each other. Given the right circumstances, people will flourish. Capitalism is built on the assumption of human sin. That actually we're looking out for ourselves. It's a system built on self-interest. I will pursue what I want in my way unless you stop me. I will pursue my stuff and it's up to you to pursue your own stuff. So it's a system built on sin. Now there is a strength to that. Because people are sinful. A system built with the inbuilt assumption that's correct, that we are sinful, in one sense is bound to work better than other systems, isn't it? So if it assumes that we're sinful and we are sinful, then hopefully it would work. But the weakness to it is that to do well in that system, you have to go along with it. The more self-interested you are, the better you tend to do in a system like that. So that leaves us with a bit of a problem as Christians, doesn't it? It sort of seems to work. But it also seems not to work. But what's Jesus' response? Well, I argue Jesus' response is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. So we're just going to work through those verses uh, just for a few minutes to see what Jesus said about this sort of thing. The first thing he showed us is that earthly treasure is temporary and temperamental. So let me read those verses to you again, verses 19 uh, to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying here is that all earthly capital, all earthly stuff, all earthly treasure will fail. And if our life is about the pursuit of earthly treasure, then ultimately it will disappoint. The amazing dresses that you see uh, those women wearing on the red carpet, well, one day they're going to be moth-eaten. They're not even going to be fit to sell in a charity shop, not even going to be able to sell it in Rummage or, you know, British Heart Foundation in town. That amazing jewellery that the world chases after will one day lie tarnished underneath the ground, like the trinkets of previous generations. People wore the jewellery and now we dig it up, don't we? That new gadget that you've got will one day be obsolete. 
probably sometime next week. <laughs> but what it's saying here is that any earthly investment is ultimately temporary. It will disappear. Any investment that you make eventually will fail on the earth. And any earthly investment you, fail, uh, you make will ultimately be temperamental. Gadgets can break. Dresses can rip. Jewellery invites thieves to come and steal them. And the sad thing is that when those things happen, we'll be sad. It will hit us more than important things. So many more important things in life. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you spend your life going after stuff, when stuff breaks or breaks down, when it fades or when it falters, you'll feel like you're falling apart. Because that is your world, if that's what you're chasing after. That is your treasure. But Jesus tells us to invest in something more, doesn't he? He doesn't say just don't do that. He says lay up your treasure in heaven. So it's right to lay up treasure. There's nothing wrong with that in in itself. But what we're to do is to lay it up in heaven. So he's saying work, sweat, toil, lay awake at night for the things of the Lord. Not for stuff that will be broken or forgotten in 12 months time. Now that might mean working and sweating at our job. But we'll be working for another reason from the world around us. We won't be, won't be working for those earthly trinkets. It might mean working and sweating with our families. As we seek to see them uh, love the Lord. It might mean working and sweating with our friends. Facing rejection, facing hardship as we live as a Christian alongside them. But it's the treasure that will last. So cure for capitalism 101 if you like. Earthly capital is not worth our grey hairs. Any other treasure than God is not worth it because it will fail us. So we cannot buy wholeheartedly into the capitalist system. Because that's what that's all about. We're actually looking out for God's interests. As Christians, we're looking out for the interests of others, aren't we? And that means that in a capitalist system, we're not going to live the capitalist dream, or the American dream, as they call it over in America. I've always wondered what the British dream would be. You know, (laughs) a quiet cup of tea on a sofa, probably something like that. Um, But we're not going to live the capitalist dream, are we? But in God's system, when we're laying up treasure in heaven, actually it means that we'll be richly rewarded beyond our wildest dreams. It's not that we don't have treasure, it's that we have treasure in heaven. We have reward in heaven. So work for that, don't work for earthly capital that will fail. The second thing that we see is that an eye fixed on real treasure leads to a light-giving life. An eye fixed on real treasure leads to a light-giving life. Let me read Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Now, I must admit, when I first looked at that this this week, I thought, oh, do I need to miss this out? It doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the flow of the passage. What's going on? It just seems a bit of a random thing to put in the middle of what we're going to see is a section about money, really. But it's worth knowing that the word healthy there, uh, so uh, when it talks about if your eye is healthy, uh, in the King James Version, it's translated single. 
Um, I don't normally go with the King James, but that's that's really the meaning of the word. It can mean healthy, but it can also mean single, devoted, unified, wholly given to something. It can also mean generous, that word. So if you look on the back of your sheets, you'll see James chapter 1 verse 4. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That word generously there is is a version of the word that we've got here, meaning healthy or, or singly. Now, it could carry both ideas, couldn't it? If singleness of purpose is uh, in mind, then it, it looks forward to the following verses, doesn't it? It means to look to God wholly, not dotting about everywhere with our eyes going all over the place, but only keeping one thing in mind. That's what our eyes are to do. Keep your eyes on the prize, if you like. If it's generosity in mind here, if it's talking about a generous eye, then it looks backwards and forwards, doesn't it? A generous eye that brings light to the whole body. A generous eye is the opposite of the evil eye. So in in, in Middle Eastern cultures, they have this idea of the evil eye. If you go to Turkey, you'll see sort of little pictures of them. And the idea of the evil eye is a sort of greedy eye uh, that keeps things for itself. So the opposite of that, a good eye, if you like, is a generous one. And it's one that brings light to the whole body, a generous spirit. So they're not actually that dissimilar, are they? Because if you really got your eyes fixed on God as our real treasure, then you will be generous with your earthly treasure, won't you? If God is really who we're looking to, then we'll hold the things of this world lightly. We'll be happier to let them go. And we'll be a light to the world as we generously give of ourselves and of our earthly things. Just as Jesus was a light to the world as he gave himself. But if we have our eyes fixed on other treasures, then we'll end up in darkness. No light to our world, no light in ourselves. We'll be idolaters because we'll be putting other things alongside or above God. That'll be what we're fixing our eyes on. Or we'll be moving our eyes from side to side at different things, but not focusing on God. So an eye fixed on real treasure leads to a light giving life. It's, it's bringing light to the world. So that's another argument against us just wholeheartedly going with the capitalist system. Because we're called to be generous. We're called to focus on God, not on money. And that's really where he goes to in that last little section, isn't it? You cannot serve God and your own treasure. So have a look at uh, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. That either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This really sums up where he's got to, doesn't it? As individuals, we can't be wholehearted capitalists. We cannot serve God and our own earthly interests. Think about it, Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, it's there on the back of your sheets, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, just as a point of balance, though, it doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. But it does say look out for the interests of others. But what he's saying here is that we can't have both of those things as our masters. We can't have our own interests and God's interests both as our masters. It's not wrong to look out for our own interests. But if they are our master then we're in trouble. What he's saying here is that you have to pick sides. Not capitalism or Marxism, but God 
or anything else. Be it money, be it family, be it comfort, be it the middle class dream or the Marxist revolution. Nothing can take place alongside God or above God. Now imagine with the folks here this evening uh, that above God is not so much the problem. We know that. We know we're not to put those things above God. But his point here, though, is that you can't serve two things. You can't put something alongside God. The problem is not serving God or money. It's serving God and money. So imagine if you uh, worked in an office. I I used to work with an office where we had a sort of sub-manager and an overall manager. And sometimes they would tell you to do different things. But in the end, you only really had one boss. The person who was the, the big boss, if they said you had to do something, that's what you had to do. And it works like that in our lives, don't, doesn't it? In the end, there's only one boss at the top. We can only fix our eyes on one thing. And we need to ask the question, is that something that we've got in ourselves, that be it money, be it family, be it our own interests? Or is it God? Who's actually the boss. When he says do something, that's what we do. Even if that's not we what we want to do in our own interests. If you want to know what you're fixing your eyes on, you can do the classic Yorkshire test. You know what the classic Yorkshire test is? Look at your bank statement. That's the Yorkshire way. If it's all DVDs and meals out, then it probably means that entertainment is up there along with God. If it's all presents for your grandkids, then you're probably in danger of having your grandkids up alongside God. If there are not a lot of payments there, then it's probably money because you're saving it all in your account. So I'll leave it to you to think what it would look like if you're fixing your eyes on God, what your bank statement would look like. But often things like that show our priorities, don't they? They show what we really value. So Jesus here is saying that We can't just be a normal member of our money-obsessed society. We can't just go along with it. His response to capitalism is that we're going to be different in our society. And if you're not different, if you're not living differently to the world around you, then something is wrong. So our final point, what should our attitude to capitalism be then? I want to argue a critical friend, a critical friend. Capitalism is not so much an ideology or a religion as Marxism, where both things are are up there. You do get your market as God types, as I said, that the market will somehow solve all our biggest problems. Well, no, God solves all our biggest problems, doesn't he? On the whole, it's not as much as an ideology, because there's so many varying different types underneath it. And it's worth remembering that Jesus lived under this system. It was basically a capitalist system. And it's also a capitalist mindset that allows us to exist as a church peacefully. There's generally an attitude in society, in a capitalist society, is if people want it, let them have it. Alternatives to capitalism tend not to allow churches to exist peacefully. Because the idea is the state controls everything. State monopoly on religion is probably not something that we want to desire this side of glory. Even when it's been Christians, or nominally been Christians... It's gone wrong, hasn't it? There's been abuses. We know that power corrupts. And if you think about the early church, it was never in that position. It was not in a position to change the society. It lived oppressed in that society. Yeah, although capitalism is sort of our friend, 
with caveats. There are times when we're going to have to disagree with our capitalist consumerist culture. The first thing like we've seen is that it's not all about earthly treasure. We're not just going to be chasing money, chasing after things in our life. Nor can we expand the capitalist way of thinking to religion as many try to do. So you know the idea there's a sort of marketplace of religion and all religions are just competing vendors of, of religion selling it to you. All offering really the same product but different brands. And it doesn't really matter which one you belong to. But choosing Christianity over something else is not the difference between shopping at Sainsbury's or Waitrose. It's a matter of life and death, isn't it? It's not just one choice among many in that sense, even though that's how it often feels and fits. Actually, this is a choice between life and death. So we cannot accept capitalism wholesale. And I think what Churchill said about democracy fits very well with capitalism. Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And I think that's true with capitalism, isn't it? You could argue that capitalism is the worst system, apart from all the others, as we've seen them work out through history. I think there's a debate to be had on what form of capitalism. Can we make it less dependent on greed, less dependent on self-interest? But in the end, I'd like to finish with a quote from Calvin, Calvin Coolridge. He said, we do not need more intellectual power. We need more spiritual power. We do not need more of the things that are seen like money. We need more of the things that are unseen. So let's pray that that would be our attitude uh, to the world around us. We'll sing and then we'll take some questions. <coughs> yeah. Okay, so the question was, to what degree can saving be uh, a good thing? I think in the Bible we're called to be good stewards of what God's given us. Uh, I think in the system that we live in, we're encouraged to save for our retirement. Uh, so some of the folks here might have had you know, quite a good deal with their retirement. I imagine <coughs> people of a younger generation, if we don't save, then actually we're going to be dependent on other people uh, when we're older. Uh, and the Bible tells us that we're, we should try and be, live independently, work hard. Uh, and make our own living. So I think it's a, it's a wise idea to save. Um, yeah, early Christians had a bit of a problem with this because they thought, well, Jesus is coming straight back. So some of them thought, oh, we don't need to work, don't need to save. But actually, let's, let us like 1 and 2 Thessalonians encourage us to know we, we do need to save, we do need to live in this world uh, because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Um, and I think there are people who go overboard so in the same way that you might want to think about what you need to live on now, you might want to think what do you need to live on in the future, you can be greedy with your future self, um, but I wouldn't encourage that to you know, not leave enough for yourself. So again, it's this thing, we, we've got to go along with it, this is a system we live in, but it's then thinking through how do we do that as a Christian, how much is too much, how much is too little. Is that helpful? Okay, other questions? I agreed with your conclusion that um, it's the least worst option. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, and I suppose that's born of you know my study of theory and of experience. But there are clearly abuses. Um, and, and yes, the, the system is based on an acknowledgement of sin, and there are checks and balances in systems working mm. properly. 
involved and it doesn't work properly mm. and uh, and people are abused I'll go as far as to say that within within the system mm. so to what extent do you think the church and I'm, I'm thinking of you know Jesus saying you shouldn't be serving God and money but uh, to what extent should we as a church collectively corporately be campaigning against abuses of the system or to what extent is that a distraction from the main thing that's a good question so just to, if you couldn't hear on the recording the question was then um, to what extent should we be campaigning uh, for uh, issues of, of justice in those areas for people who are being oppressed by the system I think it's easier to answer as individuals so the Bible does call us to, to live for justice you know, um, so if you read Old Testament books, you know, it's a love mercy and uh, do rightly. Um, and part of that is, is is justice for the poor. I mean, if you read the Old Testament prophets, you know, it's all about you're, you're mistreating these people. You're not helping the poor. You're not looking after this group of widows or all of it is there. I think there, there is a place for that in the corporate church as well. I think if you look at Acts, where they cared for widows, that was a corporate church project. It wasn't just individuals doing for that. They were looking after a group in, in society. I think, yeah, as you, you rightly pointed out, that it can be a distraction. Um, in the end, those things are important. We do need to do those things. But God has given us something as a higher priority for church. And if it's a choice between preaching the gospel... And doing those things as a church, I think we always need to go with preaching the gospel. If we're in the position to do both without it being a distraction, I think we should. So, I mean, the early church's um, way of doing that was right. The apostles, you look after word and prayer. This group of people set apart, you might want to say they're deacons. You go off and do the practical side of things so that we don't get distracted waiting tables, organising who's going to bring the bread this week, organising all that side of things. If your church is big enough and organised enough to do that, I think it's it's a good thing to do. But it mustn't then become it mustn't then become the thing to do, and the gospel goes down. So yes, we can do both, um, but gospel is always going to be higher. So if we lose something, it's going to be that. Um, the danger is if we just have that and end up losing the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it will work out differently for every church, and we could chat about that tomorrow at the members meeting if you like. Um, in the section where we're looking at future stuff, but that would be my my take on it. So there is a role for the church, but yeah, we must be careful it doesn't become what the church is there to do. So I might have rambled a bit there. Any other questions? Do you think that the church today is uh, we're too, too affected by the capitalist system? The question was: Do we think that the church today is too affected by the capitalist system? Probably, if you look at things globally, if you look at distortions of the gospel that come out, things like the health, wealth and prosperity gospel, that's that's part of capitalism, isn't it? It's pursuing your own stuff, your own treasure. Um, how As to how much it affects us in our own evangelical world, I think it's really hard to tell. Um, partly because of that issue with the fish, that when you're in that it's really hard to see so we look back at previous generations and we go oh they they were definitely a product of their time they were definitely a product of their society look at that um it's harder to do that when you're in 
that society. So undoubtedly we are. In what ways will be harder to tell? Will be easier to look back and look at our mistakes <laughs> in you know a hundred years time if, if we're in a slightly different form of capitalism. I think probably the obvious ones are the way that we we try and go along with the market. So we do end up trying to sell ourselves as a brand rather than preach the gospel. Um, those are sort of obvious ways. But the difficulty is, is that we do live in that sort of system. And it's not, it would be lovely if every Christian um, had their head switched on and could understand that, yeah, it's not all about, well, what can I get out of this church and what can I get out of that church? Unfortunately, Christians don't have their heads switched on either, just as much as churches don't. So there are some churches that pander to that and probably do fairly well. There are some churches that don't and might not. And you've got to decide, well, what do we do in that? Do we, do we pander towards that? I don't think we should. Do we com- go the complete opposite and say, right, we're going to not do anything that could possibly, you know, make it look like we're actually trying to get people to come along? No. Where you go in the middle is very difficult, isn't it? And different people will draw the lines in different places. Um, but yeah, I think we need to be aware that that's a danger. I think some churches probably aren't aware that that's a danger. Then it's not even on their head that that could be a problem. But like I say, the problem is that that's where our society is at. So um, we don't want to go wholesale, but we do want to reflect the culture in some way. We do want to reach into the culture that is capitalist. And I'll try and think of some better answers <laughs> for later on, but off the top of my head, that would be where I, w- I would say. Yeah. yeah. Apart from a mortgage, hmm. do you think it's wrong for Christians to borrow money? Okay, apart from a mortgage, do I think it's wrong for Christians to borrow money? Um, I think it's a wisdom call. Right. Thinking back to our series in Proverbs, if you've been at Life Groups, um, it's probably unwise to borrow a lot of money. I don't think that it's wrong, um, because if it was wrong, they'd be wrong for a mortgage as well. Mm-hmm. I do know Christians who think that it's entirely wrong and have, have built their own houses and things because they refuse to be put into debt. I think, again, in the system that we live in, um, that is not the, the big issue. Yeah. But the issue then is don't get yourself into more debt than you need to. Um, so I don't think it's wrong for Christians to use credit cards or to, to take out loans. But I'd say you want to do that very, very carefully um, because it, it could put you in very awkward and difficult positions. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a wisdom call. I wouldn't advise it, but I wouldn't say that it was actually sinful. That, that's my, my take. And I, I, I again, I know Christians who disagree on that, but we have a mortgage. And if I disagreed with it, I wouldn't have a mortgage. Shall we sing our last song? <laughs>